Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. Today, our guest is Luca Mezzelida, and uh, we're talking from uh, Arizona in the desert to London, England, where he lives, but he's originally from around Venezia, uh, Venice, Italy. We're uh, talking today about micro front ends and also his experience with AWS and maybe some questions that our listeners would like to have the answers to. So hopefully our interests overlap. So um, Luca, how what are micro front ends and how did you kind of get into this space? Yeah, um, so micro front ends are um, a representation of a business subdomain, as I call them. Uh, and uh, they are independent artifacts that are deployable independently by different teams. And they, what they are trying to, to achieve is more or less having the same benefits of microservices. Uh, so create uh, um, teams that can be can own their destiny uh, and they can uh, uh, not only develop some code, but also maintain and deploy and, and be responsible for uh, uh, the whole, um, whole artifact. The beauty of this approach is that is reducing the cognitive load for every team. Uh, and uh, uh, in this way, uh, a team can become really business expert on uh, uh, his own domain. And that's why we are talking about um, business domains when we talk about uh, microfrontends and not, we are not talking about components. Okay, so what's the difference between a micro front end and what we might call the, let's just say the Amazon book page and, and whatever components live inside that can can you make a comparison to those yeah sure so usually components are solving a technical problem uh, imagine for instance a design system right so what you want to achieve is consistency across uh, uh, the uh, website or the application that you are designing uh, and uh, in that case you're creating i don't know the button or uh, i don't know um, a drop list a drop down whatever um, and those are primitives that then are can be used for creating uh, consistency across multiple views uh, inside your application the uh, the fact that uh, our components by design they are trying to be extensible so in in that case it means that the host of the component knows what to inject and how to interact with apis with micro frontends what we are trying to do instead is looking at the problem from a business perspective so we are saying this is i don't know is the user reviews uh, then it can be that you have a map that is similar one-to-one -one with a component it's not likely but uh, it could happen uh, but more in general, um, the a microphone tent is fully encapsulated. So the way usually how you communicate with, with the microphone tent uh, in one view and another microphone tent in the same view uh, is usually uh, leveraging the pub sub pattern. So you can use um, custom events, for instance, or an event emitter that is injected in every microphone tent. But the reality is you what you're trying to do is maintaining the, the coupling between microphone tents uh, in order to have uh, speed and autonomy uh, for for every team. Uh, and, and that's basically the main difference between uh, components and, and microfrontends. So usually you can have components inside the microfrontend, uh, but it, uh, you cannot have microfrontends inside the component. Right, so, so you could then build like the standard um, Amazon book page um, with microfrontends, but each of those microfrontends would be like the uh, a chunkier section like reviews you i think you mentioned right this kind of thing yeah okay good yeah so then cool. when would um 
micro front ends be used and when would they not be a good thing to use? Yeah, micro front ends are not a silver bullet, are not for every workload uh, or for any system. Uh, I think Jamstack single page applications as well as server side rendering architectures are still valid and, and useful. But the, the challenge that they, we are trying to, sol to solve with micro front ends is the similar one we have with microservices. Uh, so you are trying to scale your organization and you're trying to create uh, uh, agility across the organization without uh, reducing basically, because we cannot say without reducing the external dependencies uh, across teams. Uh, and I believe uh, we um, we can achieve that with uh, with microservices and more in general, uh, sorry, with micro front ends, but more in general, I'm thinking that there is uh, nowadays a revolution that is going hand to end on the different part of a stack. So if you think about uh, uh, also on the uh, data side with uh, the introduction of uh, app mesh, um, it's uh, sorry, data mesh, uh, it's uh, it's also another another interesting concept because we are seeing a modularity that is going end to end from the data point of view, back end and front end, and what they are trying to to uh, to do all these architectures uh, is uh, um, trying to create independent um, teams and uh, uh, teams that are expert and they're owning their own domain without having anyone else that could uh, potentially interfere with uh, the way how they are designing the, the data or the data model, the APIs, or even the front end. And I think it's very interesting. It's very uh, exciting for me seeing this uh, extension of modularity that is going from uh, microservices then uh, led to micro front ends and now also to uh, data mesh. All right. So what are the architectural implications let's say, of, of using this uh, kind of architecture, um, micro frontends? Uh, one thing that I have seen uh, often not uh, immediately received well by uh, developers and engineers uh, was the uh, code duplication. Uh, so it could happen that you have some code duplicated across uh, micro frontends, but that is by design. I would say uh, the fact that you have independent teams is definitely more important that you, uh, let's say, re uh, redo or rewrite uh, 20 or 30 lines of code. Uh, that definitely is one of the uh, challenges that, that you face uh, or implication you have. Then uh, the other thing is, uh, it's not uh, always easy uh, to slice the, your application following a domain-driven design approach because um, the challenge I have seen is, uh, especially on front end, uh, many people have uh, uh, little uh, understanding of, of domain-driven design and uh, they look more uh, at the problem through a, a technical mindset where you immediately identify the component, but you struggle to identify the, the business domain. And it's, I think is a, a change that we need to make in the front end community where we start to look at, at the problem with different eyes and in different way. Uh, that is a huge uh, uh, and complex uh, problem. And I think it will take uh, quite a few years before we arrive there. But uh, more often than not, I have seen that we start to go very granular with, with microphone tents and we almost match them one-to-one -one with components. And that for me is where basically then we can blame the architecture because it's too granular and too complex to maintain. But that is, uh, let's say, a problem that uh, can be solved uh, directly on the whiteboard when you start to, to look at uh, data, how your users are interacting with, uh, with your application, uh, what are your domains, and so on and so forth. 
but more often than not, unfortunately, uh, there isn't this sensibility inside uh, inside the teams uh, to uh, try to understand the big picture and the vertical where they are operating. Uh, when they do that, uh, usually there are uh, great uh, um, great results from from this approach. So, you mentioned some uh, a potential for some duplicated code. What kind of code is this generally, and would you say that it tends to steer away from dry, where where dry, as uh, Tomas and I describe in our book, dry is about knowledge, not about code, right? So do you think that there's an overlap in the knowledge kept in the code that gets duplicated, or does it tend to be more just like, um, you know, some sort of access, uh, data access or something? Um, I, I agree with you. Uh, and try, I believe, uh, is the most misunderstood uh, uh, principle that was, uh, uh, let's say, delivered several years ago to engineers. But unfortunately, oh, more often than not, the engineers are thinking dry on lines of code more than, than business domain. Uh, that said, um, in my opinion, um, you know, it depends what you need to duplicate. I give you an example. Uh, so when I was working in my previous organization, uh, we were let's say, designing this uh, for the first time. It was like uh, four or five years ago. Uh, we were designing this approach with microphone tents. It wasn't even called microphone tents because uh, back in the days, we, we didn't have that name. Um, and uh, one thing that they noticed uh, is, uh, uh, for instance, the header of our uh, application uh, wasn't changing very often. Usually, I checked on, on GitHub, and at the end, we were changing less than once per year. Uh, and focusing on creating a reusable component that cover all the uh, the different uh, um let's say domains and uh, then maintaining um let's say in the in the long run could be a challenge uh and uh and therefore we decided to to duplicate that code and and that was a decision that uh, was pretty successful for instance so every microphone 10 every uh, not every view because one microphone 10 for us was a single page application therefore was a a portion of of the uh, application because we didn't have like tens of teams working on that we were we were we had like four, four or five teams per uh, platform that was working on on uh, the application so we had like four or five headers that were replicated and and the what happened then is that the, the product team started to ask for new features on their specific vertical for the header because based on the user if it was authenticated in the country where it was the the, the header could change slightly and in that case uh, what we noticed is that we were able to apply the ch the changes and the new features uh, quickly with without the uh, risking to introduce bugs in all the application because uh, the code was impacting only one portion of the application that was basically the business experts uh, that they, uh, the developers that basically know inside out of the domain that were applying those changes inside that code. And yet, yeah, sometimes you could risk to have a discrepancies uh, on, on the UI in, in this case, like we approached, uh, but we uh, we were pretty good on, on streaming line that uh, process, providing, uh, uh, let's say, um, quite a few information from the design team to to the development team. All right. So if if I wanted to start a micro front end project, what do I do? Or or maybe multiple teams know that they're going to need this. What do they do? 
Yeah, so um, first of all, uh, we should start uh, analyzing what we, we need to achieve. So more than focusing on the technical side, my suggestion is let's start to understand how our uh, customers or users are interacting with website and usually having uh, analytics tool that would allow you to tell you that will allow you to uh, to find out uh, how a user is in, is uh, going through the through the entire uh, application is a good starting point what i realized for instance when i was uh, uh, doing uh, this exercise to identify the different domains was um, that users were going straight away on the uh, landing page from the land, let's assume, let's make some numbers. Um, one million of users were going to, to the landing page. From there, only, uh, 600,000 were moving to the sign in, sign up process. And from there, uh, the same user was, uh, uh, going to the authenticated area, probably less than 30%. Uh, and that basically allowed me also to think, okay, let's think how we are structured team, not only from, from te the technical side, but also on team wise. And we started to realize that more or less we were able to mimic exactly the same structure, team structure, uh, with this approach. So we started to have at the beginning one, uh, uh, team responsible for the landing pages because we have hundreds of them, one team responsible for, um, the authentication part. Then we had one team responsible for the catalog part uh, and one team for, um, my account and one team for the help center. The, the interesting approach is, Meanwhile, we were evolving the architecture and meanwhile, we were evolving the platform. We were evolving also the team structure and this dichotomy that uh, we uh, found out where there is hand in hand uh, and, and tightly coupled, if you want, uh, situation where the, the teams are strictly coupled with, with the architecture, uh, like the Conway's law suggests. Um, we started to have a situation where the authentication uh, domain was this was becoming too complex and therefore the team when they were at, uh, in support uh, they weren't able to understand everything end to end from the signing journey and the sign up journey because there were a lot of permutations different payment methods and so on and so forth so what we have done there is splitting the journey not from uh, uh, let's say a technical point of view but from a user point of view so we with this we said okay perfect so if i'm going to the landing page and then i uh, i want to and then a, a non-authenticated user but an existing user in the system i can go straight to the sign in i don't have to download anything related to the sign up because i will never go there and then i can access uh, the authenticated area but if i'm a new user i will never go to the sign in i i will go to to the sign up journey so in this way we split the team in two and we were able to have sign in and sign up as a two independent front ends starting from authentication and and this thing can go even more granular uh i know that uh recently they moved uh, to a more granular approach where they identify other other portions uh, and then assign to multiple teams because they're still growing as a company uh and and that for me is uh, uh the big win uh, around this uh, this architecture so we are capable to adapt our architecture based on uh, the business requirements and the evolution of the organization. So we created the agility that we were looking for that before was very complicated when we were dealing with uh, tens of developers working in a monolithic code base. Yeah, a very good example, thank you. And so apart from your experience with micro front ends and writing a book about micro front ends, which is quite popular, you are a principal solutions architect at Amazon AWS, right? Um, so 
what do you think about serverless as kind of the way forward? Yeah, so um, serverless for me was always interesting uh, since the the day that um, let's say it was announced. I remember uh, that night I was in in Munich uh, for uh, for a conference, and when it was announced by AWS, I basically immediately started to write the first Lambda connected to Slack, and it took me like two hours for doing so. And I didn't have I didn't need to to understand uh, all the the complexity behind that. It was completely abstract uh, to me, and obviously early days Lambda. That didn't do much uh, like like nowadays. Um, in general, I think the concept of serverless uh, is uh, uh, very very compelling, uh, mainly because uh, it allows uh, it allows developers uh, and in general companies and organizations to focus on what really matters. Uh, that is not let's say writing the best code ever and is not uh, operationalized uh, in a complex way all the infrastructure that needed and knowing uh, up to the the, the bit uh, or the silicon in this case. Uh, uh, everything, but it's more creating value for their users. We are writing code and we are creating infrastructure for uh, generating value, not for us, but mainly for our users. If we think in this way, serverless is great. And also is um, uh, more recently, there is uh, this uh, new uh, uh, look at sustainability and definitely, uh, especially on architecture and definitely serverless uh, could be a good partner for achieving a sustainable architecture because basically you, you when uh, you need something that has to run, it will run. Uh, and when it doesn't need that, uh, you don't pay and, and basically it can be reused, that compute can be reused or service can be reused for, for, from someone else. So obviously you really uh, enjoy this technology, maybe say even a passion for it. So um, let's let's just cover, if it, you said something interesting there when, when Lambdas first showed up and you used it this very first time, it didn't do much, but now Lambdas do a lot. Can you explain the differences between then and now? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. So at the beginning, Lambda uh, wasn't uh, was thought as a glue between between services. Now is uh, uh, available for also running some APIs. You can uh, you can definitely connect to API Gateway and immediately start to create your APIs. You can use uh, as a part of um, I don't know. Uh, we use back in the days. We use also for our CI/CD. We created a CI/CD fully in Lambda using uh, S3. Um, uh, but you can start to use for a lot of uh, of services like uh, everything that uh, I don't know needs to be um, uh, like a, I don't know a cron job uh, that usually you have like a, a container or, or a virtual machine that is running and has a, a every day or every few hours is, is doing some uh, uh, some work now you can do with Lambda and, and even Bridge where you just set up the clock and when uh, uh, every hour you need to do a compute um, let's say action you just the even Bridge is triggering the Lambda Lambda is doing this compute and then is turning off. And that, in that case, what you pay, you pay only for uh, the time that the Lambda was executing. And uh, and then that part of the compute will be reused by someone else. Uh, and that for me is, you know, it's uh, uh, it's great because you start to see more and more how Lambda is integrated with different uh, services. Another thing that for me was uh, very cool uh, when it was announced was when, when Lambda was able to uh, modify, for instance, um, uh, um, 
MySQL in Aurora MySQL database. So you, when you, there is uh, an event that is uh, you're writing uh, something on the database, you can trigger a Lambda and then you can, uh, I don't know, create a materialized view somewhere else or uh, or doing uh, some computation inside the, inside the record. Uh, and, and the same then we started to see this proliferation of usage of Lambda uh, that every day is becoming uh, more powerful and, and, and cheaper also uh, with the latest announcement that the, there were. So it, it, it's just a very exciting to see how uh, these things are evolving because uh, we take a, a step back on understanding deeply everything end-to-end -end and we focus on where we can add value. Yeah, nice um, review of those newer features. So I suppose, you know, your overlap with um, micro front ends and serverless, they must go together somehow. I, it seems like you wouldn't use one completely isolated and, and not the other as well. So how does that work? Yeah, uh, sure. So um, I think many front-end developers will find uh, the serverless paradigm, especially Lambda, um, let's say, uh, it very uh, compelling because you don't have to learn everything inside out of, of AWS, but you can uh, just uh, focus on, on what you need to know. I don't know, for instance, creating an API for your micro front-ends, whatever. Um, recently, for instance, uh, I, I saw online a couple of examples, one of the most exciting features that is coming out um, on React 18 or several components, so where you can render a port, a, one component on the server, and then that will be injected inside the, the DOM tree uh, by React. And, and that example, for instance, I've seen using Lambda for doing so. So definitely, I think front-end community will, will take uh, over from there. Uh, the thing that we need to to highlight also serverless is not just lambda is uh, let's say a variety of services like uh, DynamoDB in the case of database, for instance, uh, even Bridge or even Fargate that is an orchestrator for um, uh, for managing our uh, ECS or EKS uh, services uh, for running the containers. Uh, and it's it's you know it's, it's absolutely great because uh, I see that these things will remove the undifferentiating heavy lifting that in many workloads we don't need to to take care of. Uh, in others, maybe you need maybe you you need to you really want to have like a granular uh let's say approach and you want to move back on uh, having i don't know virtual machine or more probably containers and you want to control exactly how the things are running but in, in many of the workloads that i have experienced having a serverless approach could could really help and and microfrontends definitely can have its connotation there um and not only microfrontends but also server-side rendering uh i was listening a podcast a few months ago um from from bbc uh, where they were uh, disclose the fact that they were using Lambda for their server-side rendering approach for BBC News. Uh, that the, it's, it's, it's great because it tells you how a company like BBC is innovating uh, around that space and trying to, uh, let's say, focus more on uh, um, creating, let's say, compelling uh, solution for their customers more than covering the infrastructure. All right, so generally speaking, um... A, a lambda is has been considered sort of you know a very kind of smallish um, construct if you will like a single entity type or something like that or some specific kind of um, you know real-time computation or, or something so um, what do you think of the potential of using um, you know basically a lambda to host, not a giant monolith, but a 
a monolith that is, let's say, well-structured or modularized. And um, is that a, a possibility? Yeah, I believe it is. Uh, so as usual, as usually in, in architecture, it always depends from the context, right? So uh, it could be that maybe you have a, a nice modular monolith as, a, as Sam Newman was used to call, uh, that is nice and small enough and well-written that it could squeeze in inside the Lambda. Um, let's say, obviously the, the the power of lambda is understanding also what is the representation of uh, uh, different uh, um let's say uh, concept like microservice for instance uh and uh, how the lambda plays in it and an example that i used to to make always is uh imagine that for instance we have uh, uh a, an api let's say it's a crowd api for create update uh, delete and um and so on for a specific like create creation of users so let's assume and then you start to see in your volumetric that you have um i don't know a lot of reads but not many create the list uh, or update actions so potentially what you could do with lambda is if you want to migrate your microservice to to this approach is using uh, one lambda for read only and the other and another lambda for the other free uh, type of actions and and in my opinion uh, yes you are not following the recommended practice to have one lambda per verb but at the same time we need to have we need to be a bit pragmatic and i believe that uh this approach will allow you quickly to to move away from a container so there you already have some uh, some savings because you don't need a container that is running 24-7. You start to have uh, a occasionally available uh, a container because when you need it, it will be there. And when it's not needed, uh, you don't pay for that. Uh, and you start to do your first journey towards uh, serverless. And then if you start to see the benefit around behind that and how it's working, you can start to split it over and you can start to say, OK, now I start to have a certain volume. Uh, I would like to use uh, I would like to use more uh, the power of Lambda or other services that are serverless, uh, and and you start to enter in that world. And for me, you know, it's um, there isn't black or white. There, there, you need to find the, the right shade for for your context, and it's not easy at the beginning. Uh, but uh, yeah, I have seen as well some some customer using um, a monolithic Lambda. Uh, and there are pros and cons, and maybe it's that the, your project is so small that can fit inside the lambda. Uh, yeah, I it could be, or maybe it's in, not inside one lambda, maybe inside I don't know four or five lambdas, and you have the entire project. Why not? I mean, um, the only thing is we cannot advocate against or in favor if we don't understand the, the context where we exactly operate. well explained. So, I think initially lambda had what three gigabytes of. Uh, memory to run in and now it's 10 gigabytes so what is is that one of the reasons that people are just starting to handle larger i don't know payloads of of input or um, generating more output or how, why is that yeah, the um, let's say improvement of Lambda that is uh, uh, happening uh, almost every year. There is some some uh, nice improvements. Uh, for instance, last week we announced that, that now uh, Lambda is also available in ARM architecture on Graviton two. That is our uh, implementation of ARM. Um, and the I think uh, uh, the increase of memory was related on certain requests that we have from customers. They started to see the value of the serverless uh, paradigm, uh, and they want 
wanted to have uh, available in their workload. If we think, for instance, data scientists, that uh, maybe they are a great mind on, uh, definitely they are a great mind on, on the math side and the science side of, of data, but uh, maybe they have some lack of knowledge uh, on the DevOps side and the infrastructure side, having a construct like uh, a serverless, it could only help them because they can really achieve this. But in order to have uh, at the same time the, um, let's say, uh, computation power and storage that they're looking for, uh, they needed, uh, let's say, an improvement on, on, on Lambda in this case. And that's basically the reasoning behind uh, behind that. And I, uh, let's say, I would say that uh, uh, I'm sure that around the world there are customers that are doing also other uh, in very interesting and compelling solutions uh, using uh, this approach because uh, obviously more power it means that you can uh, uh, really start to squeeze in uh, different workloads that maybe before wasn't possible you didn't even think about uh, and now instead is reality because uh, um, you can leverage the benefit provided by the serverless paradigm on uh, uh, let's say more complex uh, uh, systems yeah good so um, now, we, we sure wouldn't want to take a big ball of mud monolith, as we would call it, like this legacy that is not well modularized and, and just kind of a big mess. And we're, we're certainly not going to try to put that in a Lambda. That, that, that's correct. Uh, recently, for instance, I um, I shared in several talks uh, a, mo a modular approach for Lambda using hexagonal architecture, uh, and that is also great uh, because uh, it would uh, if you refactor your code using hexagonal architecture, uh, then uh, you can uh, really think to. Uh, uh, extract from a microservice or a monolith code base uh, portion of your code and uh, and start to uh, put them inside the Lambda and maybe also refactor the environment where it's running. Because the beauty of, of hexagonal architecture is uh, this decoupling between uh, um, layers where you have an adapter that is uh, doing the anti-corruption layer from, from the external world and the encapsulation of two different contracts that are translated uh, from the internal and external world. And, and that for me is, is great because that means potentially if the business logic remains the same, I can extract from a monolithic code base, moving in Lambda and then recreate the environment around that and even moving potentially uh, to different database uh, structure based on the type of data model that I have. And uh, currently I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I think uh, lambdas especially using this approach would shine even further because you have other approaches you can use like clean architecture or the onion architecture potentially uh, but those are more structured and uh, sometimes if we think about um, lambda if you have maybe like the monolithic lambda like we described before that is a modular monolith potentially you can you maybe you won't have more structure on your business logic but sometimes or vast majority of the time if you have a lambda that contains the business logic and you structure as your own wheel without looking at entities and uh, uh, i don't know uh, services and other stuff depends from from what kind of architecture you want to to handle could be more than enough to create the agility and maintain uh let's say uh, your business logic encapsulating in a way that could evolve independently from uh, the uh, environments around around it. And the other cool thing is that it, it allows us to move from, I don't know, a microservice uh, running in a container to a, a Lambda very quickly, and also potentially using that on uh, uh, the same business logic on, uh, I don't know, K-native uh, um, uh, and uh, in the cloud or on-prem uh, or in Lambda. So it, it opens up, let's say, 
variety of possibilities for workloads that require agility and, and, and long maintenance that before we didn't have it. And that's why I'm advocating this approach. Great ideas. Um, so then in essence, as you're kind of strangling the, you know, big ball of mud monolith, you're, you're pulling this uh, pieces out that, that will fit into a Lambda, maybe even a little, not, not big, but like we were saying, like not traditionally a, a kind of um, uh, structure that uh, Lambda was initially meant to host. So we're getting these um, little pieces pulled out. And one advantage is you're actually, even though you're involving more infrastructure, you're probably actually, as you do that, um, kind of saving, right? You're, you're cutting costs as you do, especially if now you're using a micro front end and you start pointing some of the requests over to these lambdas, right? Is that sort of a, a way to look at the strategy? That, that's correct. I think uh, you, you summarized pretty well. And the, the other thing uh, um, that um, uh, um, I fully agree with, with Sam Newman when he said several times, uh, sometimes you start from a, a big ball of mud and you have a monolithic architecture and you move to a modular monolith where you identify your, your domains and, and uh, you stop there. And some companies, for some companies, really moving to a more granular approach, maybe it's not needed for certain workloads. Maybe it's needed only partially. And you have like your system that is a modular monolith and some part are microservices or lambdas. And I, I'm a big advocate of that because uh, I believe that we really need to, to find the right trade-off for, uh, let's say, uh, slowly but steady improving and create agility. That it doesn't mean going from a monolithic to uh, function, function as a service, but uh, it could be, let's say, a middle ground that slowly but steady when the things are evolving you are um, optimizing towards a more cloud-native uh, approach. Right. So if, if we think of a hammer and a wrench, <laughs> you use them for different reasons, right? And so we're, we're just literally choosing the correct tool for the correct kind of compute situation that we have. And, and if it helps for some reason for uh, part of a system to stay in EC2, maybe that's okay. Yeah. And, and then move part of it to a Lambda. So yeah. let's say this from a DDD standpoint, um, and, and any of these things could apply to a domain-driven design setting, but let's say that we have um, a monolith and inside that monolith, we have five you know, uh, larger modules, not gigantic, but if we think of each of those modules as being a bounded context, um, would you say that maybe at least initially a way to uh, introduce this into serverless or, or you know, with, with Lambda is to, um, say, point all requests for each bounded context um, to, that, to a different Lambda? So you would have five different Lambda types. And then what do you do? Well, do you measure and basically see, okay, how is this performing? And when you see certain hotspots that, that need um, more Lambda, basically, then you can take those and break them out. Is that sort of what you're advising? 
Uh, yeah, but potentially you can go uh, in the middle ground, right? So imagine that you have uh, your uh, monolithic uh, architecture that is running on a virtual machine on EC2, and then you said, okay, I want to move uh, uh, towards Lambda. You can potentially use another serverless um, uh, service that is uh, Fargate. Uh, that what it does is uh, handling the auto scaling of, of your uh, containers uh, for you. And uh, it's pretty smart. And uh, it, overall, it uh, removes a lot of undifferentiating heavy lifting uh, from uh, uh, what you have to do day to day. And maybe you can start with that, start to see the volume, volumetrics, and then slowly but steady, when you do that migration, you already set up your code in a way that then it became easier to extract in a Lambda potentially. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, and that could be another option. Uh, I'm, let's say I wouldn't say the recommended practice is moving from uh, an EC2 machine straight to a Lambda. What I'm saying is based on your context, you can find uh, stuff that are very easily uh, replatformed uh, in, in a Lambda. For instance, I remember in my, in my previous job, we found once the first microservice that we've, we have written was a Lambda uh, and uh, we're moving from uh, several EC2 machines we're running monolithic code base in .NET, and we identify one endpoint that was simple, but allowed us to start to have our butter scars on uh, uh, on on cloud native. And we identified this endpoint that was serving just a, almost a static JSON, if you want, uh, with some permutation, but nothing nothing crazy. Uh, and uh, uh, we identified that we put cloud front in uh, in front of uh, so the CDN of AWS CDN uh, in front of of the Lambda, and we even mitigate because it was quite static so we could cache very well that that response um we were able to to do that in literally few days and we started to create although the observability around that we started to understand the ci cd we started to uh, understand how to write a code that the code part probably was the easiest uh, part and uh, and then you think about testing how fast your ci cd was working uh, cacheability and all the other characteristics that uh, that are relied on a specific service and that for us was an, a, a great exercise because the effort for developing that was really small but we started to move our first steps towards our DevOps, uh, let's say, um, uh, DevOps chain that create, that uh, then was foster service after service. And we started to carve in the, the monolith and removing pieces of, of logic, slowly but steady, improving all this stuff that I described before, but just starting with a small Lambda that we know that was having let's say millions of requests, but we, it was highly cacheable. Therefore, we could use Lambda very easily uh, and having a CDN that was basically offloading the traffic uh, from origin. Perfect explanation, thank you. So if someone wants to get started with micro front ends, of course, your book, Building Micro Front Ends, um, is published by O'Reilly. Are there any other books that you say someone should read? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, there are a couple of them uh, that are still uh, very valid. One is uh, um, Microphone Tense in Action that was uh, released, I think, last year, if I remember well, uh, by Michael Gears. Uh, and uh, is uh, he had a different take from mine where uh, he's focused uh, more on the technical side and, and going through the code on, on every single part. Uh, my take uh, was more, um, I have like some, obviously some chapters that are covering code and everything, but I wanted to explain all the, the, the different uh, approach that you have when you're trying to embrace uh, microphone tense. And um, 
it was a challenge because as you can imagine uh, there isn't much there so we you need to have the butter scars and understand why you take certain decision over others and that's basically what i tried to summarize in 300 pages so i went from how to design microphone tents so talking about domain driven design identifying the domains uh, dividing i created a mental model that they call the decision framework that basically go through the all the different permutation that you can embrace microphone tents i created a score uh, for every single uh, approach that you can have based on the architectural characteristic you need to leverage in your system then i moved to the uh, how other custom other uh, companies are doing that uh, and different frameworks that are available out there and different approaches. I saw, I, sh I showed an an implementation and then I focused on the CI/CD. I focused on, on a real example uh, that basically is, is explaining how to migrate from a monolithic uh, single page application to microphone tents and the, the decisions made uh, on every single step, why we were doing in, in this way over another one. Uh, and I try basically to create uh, the mental model for the readers that if today is, I don't know, uh, single SPA as a framework that they're using and tomorrow they move to another company they're using Mojo Federation, they will be able to apply exactly the same mental model to despite the framework that they are doing, like more or less how Sam Newman is doing with the building microservices because his focus is more on I explain you how microservices could be uh, written uh, despite the language, despite the framework that you're using, and I explain you what are the challenges you're going to face on observability, logging, traceability, and everything. That was my reference book for how I wanted to write building um, microphone tent. Nice. Sounds like a good um, pair of, of references to use. And I think, for example, to me, you know, what do you spend, 40 or $50 or... 40 or 50 euros or 35 pounds or whatever it is. And, and you buy your book, um, someone buys your book. They, you know, to me, that sort of spend and the time to read it, just even to be informed, even if you, even if you think that you're not going to use it, I think it's very important to be informed, especially if you're an architect and you just need to know these things. If you're sitting in a, you know, a review meeting or something, and, and you hear someone struggling with a problem, you're going to know this is a really, you know, worthwhile solution to consider um, to use this. So I'm, I'm going to recommend that, that um, people buy your books. And from what I see, it's quite popular anyway. So um, follow, follow the rest of the, yeah. So uh, congratulations on that. And then also I would like to ask if someone's going to learn uh, serverless like AWS Lambda or specifically for not, not just the kind of um, abstract view of, of what a Lambda or a function as a service is, but if they really want to dive deep into, okay, this is what you can do with AWS Lambda um, and other, other parts of the serverless platform, what book do you recommend for that? Ha, huh. uh, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, 
I think that I spend a lot of my time reading documentation and trying things more than, than reading books. I can definitely suggest a few uh, online training uh, uh, that are uh, delivered by the uh, the Burning Monk or Yang Chui. Uh, he did like a really great uh, uh, in-depth uh, training uh, on Lambda, step functions, uh, upsync right now. I know he's working on something like that. Uh, and uh, I, I had the, the pleasure to work with him in a couple of gigs in London and it's, it's absolutely brilliant uh, and definitely I think uh, uh, everyone could learn a lot from not only from his expertise but also from his passion he's uh, really passionate about serverless and he, he goes really in deep uh, about uh, several topics uh, um, and totally I think uh, if you follow him and you follow his, his training you have all the learnings that you need for me you know it's uh, it's mainly uh, try I learn a lot trying things so my time because uh, when I found like a problem I go to the documentation, I can rely on that and I start to remember. And I like to uh, push the technology uh, towards the, the limit and see different ways how we can approach that. Uh, so uh, I think despite it's been a while that, that uh, serverless is, is out as a concept, there is still a lot to learn and uh, and to see. And very often we, for, we don't spend time trying a different path and maybe embracing that just because, oh yeah, it's working, so why improving the status quo? Uh, but in reality, for me, the, the status quo has to be always challenged. Uh, and, and Lambda can definitely help uh, in several uh, systems. So I highly recommend to to keep an eye on that because you can find great surprises, honestly. Thank you for those recommendations as well. It's been very nice to have you here. Um, I'm certain this will be you know, a very helpful podcast. And uh, thank you very much for taking time. And it's a real privilege to have you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, trust me, it was an amazing uh, discussion. And, and thank you for, uh, let's say, highlight uh, uh, all the things that they have done so far. Okay, so you're, you're very welcome. And, and I guess what I'll say is, uh, buona sera and ciao. E ciao. <laughs> <laughs> ciao a tutti. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.